everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and I thought I would take a little bit of a break from the seven-headed, ten-horned beast study podcast series and just talk about a couple things. First, I'll go through my notes on all the craziness of the world and just talk briefly about that, and then go through some practical steps that people can take that uh, I've been learning a lot about lately, and that includes you know privacy-related stuff, different kinds of stuff about phones and computers and food security and all kinds of what I hope will be practical things. All right, so craziness of the world talk. Uh, for the first little bit, I think the things that concern me the most is the freedom of speech issue. And I'm not talking about the censorship necessarily. I'm talking about the idea that it's being s- seemingly really, really ramped up that that speech that could cause somebody to commit violence, in this case they're using the word conspiracy theories, that caused, in their case, the, uh, the they want everybody to believe the capital uh, situation, that that whole thing was caused by conspiracy theories. So that was caused by conspiracy theories that made them believe that. So really the problem is the conspiracy theories themselves. Now, I'm trying not to go into or get mad about the obvious pot calling the kettle black situation of them for four years, literally using their speech to try their best to incite anybody to do the worst possible things, uh, in which in a lot of cases they did, but let's not go there. But what they're proposing and having this grand sort of acceptance of that idea is one of the most dangerous concepts of the world. If you can make what they're calling conspiracy theories really the source of the terrorism because it's those conspiracy theories if believed if somebody believed it well they would commit atrocities and so therefore it's the conspiracy theorists themselves that are the terrorists if you can do that what you have essentially done is made all dissent all disagreement with the party illegal and i'm using the party in the very 1984 sense the very uh, communist CCP sense. When that takes over, you make all dissent illegal, which is, of course, exactly what every single communist dictatorship has to do. In the later parts of the Soviet Union, dissent was illegal. They at least gave you a choice. I mean, you could either go to the mental hospital or the work-slash-death camp. But it was it, it was illegal to be a dissenter, although even in that case, the dissent that they were talking about was just some some just milk toast, soft dissent about some minor aspect of uh, uh, how best to rule over people in a totalitarian way. So that is really, really terrible. And the next step, of course, is going to be censorship. And that's a given. We've already seen that. I mean, it was diabolical in a lot of ways the way what they did in terms of, Uh, Trump's Twitter account, because everybody always knew as soon as uh, they took Trump off Twitter, they would just, he would immediately go to parlor and everybody would just flood there. And it could be the end of Twitter. It could be the end of all real social media, right? Um, And so that diabolical scheme of they took parlor out at the same time, it was a coordinated attack. They should be sued so badly uh, that it would effectively ruin them. Uh, Anyways, but more of that is coming. We obviously see that they're not slowing down. They have put the pedal to the metal in that regard. I think that it's important to understand that this is happening and then take steps for your life, your ministry, understand what the worst case scenario is, what it looks like, what's coming down, 
and then take the practical steps to deal with that. So we're going to talk a lot about that in the later part of this podcast. But I do want to go over some of the other stuff because this is shaping up to look like a bit of a perfect storm uh, because, of course, what do we have going on right alongside with this? We have the coronavirus and everything that has gone on with that. The major sort of earth-shattering things that will come out of that are going to be the vaccine laws and all the stuff that's going to surround that, all the psychology and hate and whatever. And then you've got the economic fallout. Those two things all by themselves have the power to make things never, never the same ever again. Because, you know, things like, I mean, the vaccine damage stuff that, you know, you're seeing if you're if you have access to places that you can see that, which is quickly going away. And that's the scary thing. I mean, right now you see uh, people that have bad reactions to the vaccine are being, you know, strong arm. Well, first they're being kicked off of whatever platform uh, because that is a conspiracy theory that could, you know, whatever. <laughs> we know that's never going to be allowed. So there is a time very shortly where, where you'll never hear anything bad about that. That's the world that we're going to live in, at least in the mainstream. Uh, but really, the vaccine thing has so many implications. Even even if it's the most safe thing in the world, the vaccine passport thing is going to cause a major upheaval because no matter what they do or how good they are at selling it to people, there a certain segment of the population will not take it. And I believe they know that, and their plan for that is to make everyone hate those people. But hate is coming with that, let alone the obvious uh, problem of the restriction of travel. I mean, um, if you are committed to not getting the vaccine, you probably won't be flying anytime soon. So you better have alternate options, an RV or what have you. But the economic fallout for the coronavirus lockdowns worldwide is got so much power to change the world and not for the good. I can't think of a single way in which we could get out of this hole that we have now dug for ourselves. And I believe that the fallout economically of what has happened with the lockdowns and this whole thing is going to be so far reaching, like decades before we get out of this. Uh, And in the meantime, it's going to look pretty bad in lots of different ways. I'm hoping I'm just being way, way too whatever here. I don't want to be right about any of this, uh, but I just don't see how this makes any sense any other way. And I might even be able to see the the rosy side of things with just what I've said there if it wasn't for the other part of this perfect storm, the impossible division of the country facilitated by this grand enemy, the propagandists who are just I don't know who is behind all those five or so companies that has repeated this message of hate, but they really have done a number on us in propaganda. And that's not going to stop. And that means that the division of at least this country is not going to stop. My personal opinion is that this is actually also part of the plan. They're intending for this clash to not be a cold thing any. For, for too long. They want blood in the streets and they want it not here, just here in America. They want it all over the world. And, you know, Kissinger in reference to the early days of the coronavirus, who is still alive, apparently, um, said that that's why he liked the coronavirus is that 
everybody, nobody was going to trust their governments anymore. And they were, you know, it was going to finally be the way to tear down all the governments to bring in, you know, their great, wonderful new world order. Um, so I don't think that they have any plan whatsoever to, to pour any water on this fire. They want us to duke it out. And quite honestly, I don't know how, I can't imagine barring an absolute miracle, something that would make the average person who believed propaganda be on good terms with, you know, or vice versa, you know, whatever. So that's not great. Um, you know, I still don't see anything that has to do with Bible prophecy. I know this is a Bible prophecy podcast, and a lot of people are, are thinking that in the in the sort of, uh, a lot of prophecy circles, This all the stuff that I've mentioned so far is unambiguous proof that the rapture is about to happen and the end times is upon us. But that is just not anything about what Jesus says to watch for and commands us to watch for uh, in the Olivet Discourse. I mean, we're to look for very specific things and they just haven't occurred yet and they don't even look like they're going to occur. I mean, we need a man to sit in the temple to clear himself to be God. That's the one thing he just circled. It's the one thing Daniel circles and says, this is the thing. It's the one thing Paul points to when when the people were wondering if they were uh, had missed the rapture and were in the day of the Lord or what have you. And he says, no, you haven't seen that yet. So the day of the Lord has not begun. In any case, um, however you want to read that, I just don't see it yet. I don't see anything... Does that mean that these precursors could be it? Here, here's a uh, a take. You know, I agree that what I see in the Bible is is a world government, um, but you know, I don't know if it has anything to do with this coming new world order world government, or maybe Satan will take it over. I tend to think not, because Satan conquers his kingdom in Daniel eleven. Uh, 30, let's say 36 through 44, uh, certainly 40 through 45, rather, he is conquering kingdoms. We know which ones, Egypt, uh, Libya, probably Assyria. He goes after people in the east. He does this and he conquers great amounts of kingdoms himself. He gets his kingdom. Uh, he comes by it honestly, if you want to put it like that. He doesn't just take something over. I mean, in a sense, he does with those three kings. I'm not exactly sure what's happening there. And another thing on that point, and I've kind of got more clarity on this since I've been doing the Daniel uh, studies, is that people that say that that is going to be somehow the European Union, I just don't think so. I don't think so at all. I mean, if you look at a map of the European Union and every single other empire that's usually brought up in association with either the beasts in Daniel 7 or the, the metals in Daniel 2 or the specific verbiage in Daniel 7, which says that these beasts came out of the Great Sea, which is used as a synonymously with the Mediterranean Sea, these are all Mediterranean empires. The The European Union, that's just a Hal Lindsey thing. That's not, that's not what I think is happening. It's going to have to be yet another uh, Mediterranean-based empire, if anything, uh, the Ten Nation thing. But anyway, I'm getting off subject. All that to say that, I don't know, it could be. It very well could be. But here's the, t the take. It also could be that this is to be as bad and as brutal as possible and that the Antichrist comes in on a white horse and saves us from this and then and, and says all the right things that we want to hear and delivers us from our enemies. Um, so that could be a pretty terrible psyop. It could also be that we are basically in the 
grand scheme of things, like people in what's let's say 1200 or whatever, whenever Genghis Khan was coming over the horizon and they said, Oh, this is, he's going to be here tomorrow and he's going to destroy whatever. And everything's over. Or the people at the end of Rome, they had no idea that they weren't at the end of human history. To them, they had to be. You're going to destroy Rome? Rome had existed for thousands of years. thousand years, anyway. There was no conception that, that you could just not have Rome anymore. And so anybody that Attila or whoever was going to sack Rome, they had to be the Antichrist. You know, They had no con conception of that there would be yet another thousand years. So it, yeah, so it could also be that we're just in another phase of history where, where America will go, we'll, we'll be under some grand, horrible thing uh, for a while until that goes away. Or maybe it never goes away. Maybe it's the new thousand-year thing that we just live under forever until something happens. Or none of that. You know, I, and all we have to go on is the Bible. And that's why it's so important to listen to the strength of Jesus's warnings to watch for the specific signs. Not don't just read Matthew twenty-four. Read the parables after verse thirty. Uh, I guess it would be thirty-one when he starts off with the fig tree par parable and following. Every single one of those parables is saying the same thing. Watch for this stuff. I just told you the stuff. Now you, your job is to watch for that stuff. So ideally, as a watchman, you would go back to the stuff he said to watch for, and you say, okay. This stuff is mostly about false Christs, false prophets, temples, declaring yourself to be God in a temple, and a great persecution that follows that event. That's all we're given. And I don't think people like that because, especially in the sort of Hal Lindsey world, that doesn't give you anything to watch for. If you believe that you're going to be raptured well before any of that happens, um, then you don't have any, you, all you have is the birth pains where it talks about earthquakes and, and famines and stuff like that which are all very general, so you could basically make that be any time that you want it to be. I personally don't think it's general. I think it's related to Revelation 6 when it's talking about the the opening of the first, second, and third seal. They're all, they're all corresponding to the seals, which is proven in, in, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion, and the fact that the, uh, the sun, moon, and star sign occurs at the same moment, and then both Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 were given essentially proof that those seals and birth pangs are the same things. Therefore, the seals aren't general things that can just happen any old time. They're things that begin with the beginning of the seven-year covenant, i.e. the Antichrist making a covenant uh, in Israel, which I would submit must have a temple broken ground, or at least a, uh, a, a tabernacle at the very moment that that seven-year period begins. Therefore, even the birth pangs, and this is, there's some disagreement on this, this don't be dogmatic about it, but even if you said, ah, oh, Chris, you're wrong, the birth pangs aren't associated with the seals, but even if that's wrong, you're still, you would have to at least admit that those birth pangs are so general as to be essentially meaningless to apply to any other thing, because why not apply it to the potato famine in Ireland if famines is all we're given there? But Rather, I think that we should apply that famine to the pale horse famine. You know what I mean? Uh, it's very... <laughs> it, it, anyway, moving on. All right, so let's move on to talking about some practical things specifically to do with technology, computers, phones, apps, uh, various forms of communication that you can do to make yourself more resilient, make it more likely that you'll be able to uh, function in society for as the longest possible time. 
and even if you presume the worst, which I always think you should in this regard, that, that everything that you are and believe will be made illegal and punishable by death, um, if that's the worst case scenario, then planning for that will help you in the near term as well. One practical thing that you can probably rationalize is that they've already announced that something like a Chinese social credit score is coming to us very soon, probably much, much sooner than anybody anticipated. This is where they will judge your uh, how, how good you are based on which websites you visit, a lot of other factors, because of course, if they can make, as I said earlier, that that be the, the big thing, your conspiracy theorist or whatever, then it affects everything. I mean, in China, not only does it affect obvious things like uh, you can't get a loan, but you can't ride on certain public transportation and a lot of other things, I'm sure. And if it's too bad, they'll, I'm sure, come and get you. But anyway, so even in the mild version of that, you would want a more resilient web browser system and phone so that your social credit score doesn't have to be uh, too bad for the, right out of the gates. I mean, I'm sure they're going to backdate it to your other history with your uh, uh, provider, but let, they'll probably make people sign a new terms of service. But that's why it's go, a good idea to go ahead with some of this stuff. I think right out of the gates, it's important to talk about a phone. I recently found out how important a phone that can't be tracked is. Uh, I've been working on a project that uh, has to do with uh, facilitating communications in a very uh, sort of grid down situation. I'm very excited about it, but it's not a whole lot I can talk about here. Maybe someday I can. Uh, but in any case, I needed to do a lot of that stuff as quietly as possible. It's not illegal. Nothing I'm doing is illegal, but it's just something that I would just prefer to not advertise, basically. Um, and so I wanted to set up a, and it also it was an opportunity for me to practice a lot of this kind of stuff. And I realized very quickly that without a phone, you pretty much can't do anything. Uh, you can't even sign up for like Proton Mail, which is a mail service that I highly recommend that you get. Proton Mail is free up into I think maybe 500 gigabytes or something, at which point uh, you do have to pay for it. But its whole thing is it's encrypted. It's obviously very privacy minded. I mean, Google basically says they read your emails. Um, so that's not a thing. And if they cancel you, they're going to cancel that. So you don't want all your stuff there anyway. But my point is that even Proton Mail requires either another email address or a phone for two-step identification. They say in when they're asking for it, hey, look, we don't keep this, we don't whatever, but we need it for whatever security because you could be blah, blah, blah. So you can't use another email address because that email address will acquire another email address. And somewhere along the line, they have required a phone number that's going to be tied back to you. So if you really wanted a totally anonymous email address uh, that wasn't tied back to you, you would need a phone somewhere along the way. Now, my thought at the time was that I would just go pay cash for a burner phone uh, and some 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 miles, or well, not miles, some some minutes, and that works up until the point that you realize that it is very difficult to find a burner phone that does not have Wi-Fi enabled. Even the cheapest flip phones is very cheap actually to put Wi-Fi chip in a phone. So all of them have it. You can buy maybe a few off eBay or whatever these days. But and that means they're pre-installed with something that has a Wi-Fi connector and most of them even have even the flip phones have some form of Google on it. 
um, Google, Android, or what have you. And here's the problem with that. As soon as you open up that, you know, you don't connect a Google account to it. You don't even turn your Wi-Fi on. You can have it on airplane mode. But it has this, as long as it is searching for Wi-Fi routers, they call it, I think, promiscuous mode, it is mapping where that phone is within, I think, six feet uh, mm -hmm. because Google knows where all the routers are. Because when they, when they went around mapping America, they were also mapping MAC addresses of routers. And yes, some of them change all the time, but not everyone does. And as soon as you open up that phone, it's mapping out where that phone is in relationship to its router map. And it's updating its router map in the process. Basically, the more you learn about this stuff, the more that you find out that the walls have been close, closing in on us this whole time. And, uh, you know, it's getting pretty late to try to figure this out. Thankfully, there are some solutions on the phone end. And this will apply both if you want a completely anonymous burner phone to make a completely anonymous email account, or if you just want a better phone that you can use that's not constantly spying on you. It sort of works for both situations. But the two basic options are either de-googled Android phones or some kind of Linux phone. And with de-googled Android phones, that is basically rolling back Android software to its open source format because Android is essentially an open source software at the very base level. And once you get it to that level, uh, then it's not doing any of the Google things. Technically, it's still, you know, the hardware is still hardwired to the chip. I mean, you can't turn off the Wi-Fi and that kind of stuff in, in any kind of real way, but you can uh, not be actively spied on by Google. And these, this is, you know, lots of YouTube uh, tutorials on this. You can buy one. Uh, Noagendaphone.com, I think, is a place that, uh, that's an Adam Curry um, enterprise, basically. So, Noagendaphone. And they sell already de-Googled phones, or you can learn to do that yourself. Just Google de-Googled phone. The other and probably much better option is a Linux phone. This is a phone uh, that is running Linux software, and which is op all open source. And if you run all open source apps, um, then none of that is actively spying on you because it's all open source and, and you know that. Now, some of that hardware can be problematic, which is why um, Purism designed a phone that's just now starting to ship called the Librem 5, L-I-B-R-I-M 5. It's about $800. It was built literally step-by-step step from the ground up to be completely open source, to have all the hardware you know, reliably sourced, so it's not got any back doors and those kind of things. It's actually got physical switches where you can turn off the camera, turn off the, the Wi-Fi, um, and it, it's just a really interesting concept. Now, the, the basic idea with Linux, phone, Linux phones is they're going to be great phones, but it's going to be open source apps. You know, it's not going to be a great experience uh, for a lot of people that are used to all these wonderful things that they can do. And that's something I wanted to mention about all the stuff I'm going to mention today is that it all is basically a step back. It's just harder to be resilient. It's harder to do this stuff. But that's just, that's why they win most of the time is because people don't want to just not click the terms of service or what have you. So it's difficult. But I would highly recommend it. I just ordered my Librem 5. I don't have it in yet. 
one thing I did do is I got a I got a, a laptop and I I wanted to try to build a basically off the grid laptop just to see if I could. I wanted a laptop that I can completely use completely anonymously if I wanted to. I went and bought the thing with cash. I was wearing basically a disguise. Um, and I was even modifying my steps in the thing because of the cameras or whatever. I even didn't even park my... Well, I, I used another car besides mine in the parking lot because I knew the cameras would just follow me to the parking lot if they really wanted to find out who, who bought it. And the car that I used didn't have a license plate on it. <laughs> and uh, just totally trying to really do my best with that. I bought a burner phone, which I use, you know, in any kind of thing with that phone. That phone, that computer to this day still hasn't. And it's not just that I ran Linux. So, of course, I got this, this computer home and it was, um, you know, whatever, a standard sort of computer running Windows. And then I installed Linux. Um, I think I st installed Parrot OS. So Linux has lots of different versions of their software. And then... Now comes the interesting part. What you use to browse the internet completely anonymously. There are a lot of different ways to do that. Now, Linux is important as a baseline for your computers because um, it doesn't have any of the backdoors stuff that Windows does. Again, it's all open source, so everybody knows it's not, it's not spy, your operating system is not, is not the enemy, which is a good starting place, obviously. Next, you have to figure out how you're going to browse the internet. And most of those browsers, I mean, Google Chrome might as well just be, I mean, obviously, that's not the way to go. Uh, neither is some of the others. Firefox and some of the others are, are bad, too, about this. Now, you've probably all heard about VPNs, if you're podcast listeners. And VPNs are something better to do than nothing, uh, but it is not, it depends on who you're trying to to hide from, really. VPNs aren't much security against too much because all you're really doing is, is routing your traffic through another company's servers who promises not to tell everybody what you've been doing. Um, but really it just depends. It's just a matter of somebody knocking on their door and saying, Hey, look, we are so-and-so uh, three letter thing. Please show us what you have on file. So it's not, it's not very great. It's widely considered to be not the step you really need to take. There are two things that I would recommend doing. One is called Hoonix, and the other is called Tails. But I think that if you look at any list of sort of the best way to do it, it's usually Tails. And all three of these basically are going to be using a Tor browser. Tor browsers are basically a way to completely anonymize your IP address in a very interesting and efficient way, T-O-R. Um, the difference in something like Hoonix is Hoonix is run on a virtual box. Uh, so let's say I have a Windows machine or a Linux machine or Apple, what it doesn't really matter. You install a virtual box, which is basically a system within a system. And then in that system, you run uh, Hoonix. And the, what makes, and Hoonix is basically, among other things, um, it has a Tor browser for you to, to browse the internet and do other computing stuff within that virtual machine. But the difference is that it anonymizes everything that comes from your machine. So while your machine is doing other things and using other apps to access the internet, all of that stuff is being routed through the Tor browser. So it's a really, really solid system. It is not foolproof. For example, if your system is compromised, they'll have access to your actual uh, you know, Windows or Apple system, same same thing is, is they could confiscate the actual hardware and then have access to everything 
uh, that way too. So it's not perfect. Really, it seems like the perfect solution is something called Tails. Tails is an operating system on a USB drive. I can't remember what the limit, I think it needs to be eight gigs or maybe it's more, I don't know. But basically it's it's a Tor browser that is that it operates from the USB drive. It basically uses the hardware on your computer only, like your RAM and stuff like that. But you're doing all the browsing from the USB drive and no record of anything is being kept. Once you take that uh, hard drive out, there's no record of anything on that hard drive or on a computer or whatever. It's basically complete, completely anonymized. So that's something to look into. I think that would be just a good thing to have, a little USB drive that you could always plug into any computer and know that you could browse securely and you don't need a VPN. In fact, I, they don't want you to use a VPN if you're running uh, Tails. Uh, so anyway, check that out, Tails USB drive. It's an interesting thing. I want to come back to some more techie stuff, but first I want to break up the monotony by talking a little about food security. So I, I had been stocking up on food more for the election and before that, and I know probably some of you do as well, and I want to suggest don't do anything with that food. I mean, keep it rotated, obviously. It's probably going to be a really good thing that you have that food and just practically speaking, if it can, if that food is in a situation where it can last, you know, at least five to 10 years, uh, which is a reasonable amount of food if you're storing it correctly, a reasonable amount of time if you're storing it correctly, then um, I think it's going to pay major dividends. You can already see the prices at the grocery store are going really, really high. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. And I don't think it has anything to do with you know, coronavirus or, or whatever else. Um, if you are a listener of Ice Age Farmer, and I don't agree with everything that he says, but he does, he's one of the guys that are talking a lot about the di different food security and crop failure problems. His thesis is basically that it's kind of intentional. Part of this is, but some of it isn't. Some of it is just, we had a really, really bad harvest the last few years, and we are really, really low on food. And nobody seems, not only are we as America not doing anything about it, we are actively selling a lot of our badly needed food to China, who has been on a buying spree uh, of all kinds of meats and foods and stuff like that. You know, if you are a person who's been watching food prices, like uh, in terms of a trade or a commodity, that is also going crazy. Even freeze-dried food, doubled in price in some cases. So, you know, I don't think food is ever a bad investment if if you can have have it in such a way that you know that you will eat it as a rotation, in a rotation. Like, in, in other words, only buy stuff, if you can, that you eat anyway. If the stuff that you eat anyway, a large portion of that can be purchased in advance, in advance, put it in mylar bags or other secure or cans or different things like that, and you can actively keep that rotation going where you know where the expiration date or when something's likely expiration is, and just sort of first in, first out rotation situation, you're already gonna be way ahead of the game even if nothing bad happens because food prices in the best of times increase by a pretty good amount year by year, and so by you purchasing them a year in advance, you have essentially made yourself quite a bit of money depending on how much food that you have bought. It's 
As I said before, it's insurance that you can eat. But I want to encourage people, if you're worried about, especially, you know, as a commodity, I think it's a great uh, commodity to have. Uh, just ask Egypt in, uh, you know, in Joseph's day. Egypt became literally unrivaled in terms of wealth after that famine just because of that Joseph thing and the, and the grain. Everybody sold everything they had to Egypt just to get grain. So even if you were looking at this from the most cynical perspective ever, that is a good buy if something happens. But if it doesn't, you don't lose unless you're not planning on eating or maybe you package it incorrectly and it does, it, and it does spoil. Just a couple tips on that. Canned meat is, you know, all expiration dates are basically suggested. A lot of these things will last years and years and years past their expiration date. And there's different sort of uh, uh, theories about that online. Um, canned food, for example, has been found at the bottom of the ocean, several, whatever, it was like 150 years old, cans of uh, vegetables and meat and different things were tested in a lab and they're basically the same nutritional content and obviously no nothing that would harm you or whatever. Basically, it preserved it for 150 years. Routinely canned foods are tested from the 70s that are okay. Freeze-dried foods the same way. Everybody knows freeze-dried foods at least something like 30 years, uh, depending on um, you know if it was done correctly. But even at the grocery store, if you just start going around and checking different things, what you're going to find is meat is and is always got pretty long expiration dates in cans. Like every almost everything else in the grocery store is going to be like, you know, one year out, maybe two years out. Meat will typically be four to five years out, even on the back of the can. So you know it's got even more than that probably. You want to avoid dented cans and you want to avoid putting it in extreme temperatures, lots of hot and lots of cold. You want it to be static and you want to do some obvious things. But, um, you know, I want to encourage people to stock up. What you'd never want to do is be in a situation where you have to go to the grocery store while everybody's at the grocery store. And I want to say that there's we're in a situation because of all the things that are happening and everything's on a razor's edge that it's just we're an event away from history turning on a dime. We don't know what that event will be. We don't know if it's going to be, you know, it could be anything. We just don't know where it's all going. And in this climate, it's just, it's a prudent thing to do, I think. Speaking of other prudent things to do, I want to talk a little about Bitcoin and gold and silver. Gold and silver is a good thing to have. It's also kind of dangerous to have gold and silver. At least you need to hold it loosely because if history is any guide, um, gold and silver is very often confiscated. And what, why I say hold it loosely, I think that there's a time when you cash in your gold and silver if things get too bad. You know, you don't say, uh, I mean, because it's, it's really, you know, a guessing game. If things get really bad, can you use it for bartering? Sure, I guess so. I, I guess my, my thoughts with gold and silver is try to trade it in for real usable assets uh, and have sort of a goal in mind because I think it's too dangerous to have too much gold and silver or anything like that because just historically it's a target for confiscation. Uh, so just be careful with that kind of stuff. Just a few more things on this point about gold. Um, it's confiscated in large part. You're, you're probably thinking, well, I'm not going to tell anybody that I have any gold. Well, if you bought gold 
um, in certain quantities, they are obligated to report that. If you bought certain coins, like Krugerrands or something, they're obligated to report that, certainly in uh, uh, larger quantities. So the government does know that you have gold in some cases, even if you're saying, well, I bought it piecemeal and they don't know, and I bought it from coin shops and cash or what have you. Then you say, okay, well, maybe they don't know, but you're still going to have to deal with capital gains tax if you want to buy anything other than bartering and some for some unofficial thing. If you have any plans of, you know, gold going up to some astronomical price and then you cashing in, well, if it does go up to an astronomical price and it becomes a commodity that the government wants to fight a war with or something, they're going to steal it from you by raising the capital gains tax to an astronomical amount or by making it illegal for you to spend it in any real way anyway, which would make its value go down in the real world uh, as a barter thing too. So there's like a, that's what I mean by there's a happy medium with gold that I think that when it starts to rise as a result of all the reasons that you would own gold, I think trading it in for assets that are far less regulated, um, like, I don't know, tractors or paying off your house or land or food or maybe even land is regulated, but not to the same degree. It's not got that same capital gains thing. Um, so, yeah, the government will find some way to steal your gold if it actually does what all the gold bugs want it to do, it's going to be a mixed blessing to say the least. Um, also, I would like to say about Bitcoin, Bitcoin is very volatile. And, uh, you know, there's some interesting thoughts about Bitcoin. I, I have, um, I think Bitcoin is something that every single Christian needs to learn how to buy and how to store correctly. And not as a speculative investment or whatever. Whatever the price of Bitcoin is or will be, it doesn't really matter. Try not to think so much about what the current price is. Is it low? Is it high? Don't think about it like a stock trader. Think of it like diversifying into an asset that might be Christian's way of buying anything online in the future. Um, and even if, you know, you just look at it in terms of probably some of your favorite uh, uh, people that you support or whatever. They're not going to have 501c3s much longer or they're not going to be able to have PayPal's or, or any of those things or bank accounts or whatever. We already know that's the case. So Bitcoin is become, I think, is it a way for people to support um, uh, people in the future and maybe much more than that. I think, I, you know, Peter Schiff is a, a guy that, you know, really talks up gold a lot and he's sort of anti-Bitcoin to a certain extent. He said something in a podcast the other day, and his reasoning was that, you know, why he should be pro-gold and, and anti-Bitcoin was because at least gold is an asset. I mean, he's got lots of reasons, but one thing that he sort of centered in on was that gold has this, this uh, baseline use that it can be used for jewelry and certain other sort of uh, electrical components and stuff like that. It has an end user, which gives it intrinsic value. He used the example of in certain sort of wartime situations, people using cigarettes as currency, even though not everybody smoked cigarettes, they all knew that some somebody somewhere down the line needed these cigarettes and to them it had real, real value. So it gave, it gave the cigarettes actual value as currency to even people that didn't smoke because of that end user that, uh, that did smoke. And he said that Bitcoin doesn't have that and therefore is, you know, a much, much riskier investment. 
And I would argue with that and say, no, Bitcoin does have that end user and it is the person who has been completely canceled. It has been the person who has no other options, can't get a bank, can't get a PayPal, but refuses to back down in their beliefs or whatever. So Bitcoin does have a very strong use case. And I think that, you know, you could say, well, Bitcoin could get banned by the governments. And I say it like that because I think that it would require all the world to ban it because entire countries are putting their entire power infrastructures to work mining Bitcoins. Some of these nations have rolled the dice big on Bitcoin. And so, yeah, you could say, well, America outlawed, outlawed Bitcoin, but the rest of the world didn't. And that's, and that's all that matters to keep the price flowing. As long as Bitcoin has value to somebody, it can still have value to everybody. So I think that if nothing else, Bitcoin um, can have a future as a currency or medium of exchange among those of us who have been canceled and can't get a bank any other way, but still want to do ministry, still want to do things and participate for as long as we possibly can. So anyway, the quick primer on Bitcoin is this. You buy Bitcoin at an exchange, something like Coinbase. You can set that up pretty easily. The, you know, a lot of people will say you have to really, really be careful in setting up a Coinbase account, keep it all offline. And of course you do want to do that. You don't want to put your password of anything online that has to do with Bitcoin. But it's not that big a deal as long as you're not storing your Bitcoin on Coinbase. What you want to do is store it in a cold storage wallet, which is basically kind of like a USB drive. It's kind of a specially made USB drive. I mean, technically you could store it on a USB drive as well. One of the best ones out there is called a Trezor wallet, T-R-E-Z-O-R, Trezor. However, you know, there's lots of different types and styles of cold storage wallets, but the idea of you having it in your hand, um, in your physical possession, and of course, it's got codes and stuff associated with it that you memorize or what have you. So that's, uh, I wanted to mention that. Another thing you should know about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is by no means anonymous in one sense. Uh, everybody's Bitcoin address and all the transactions that they make to a certain extent are uh, public knowledge. So while they don't know who is, uh, you know, corresponding to a certain Bitcoin address, um, they do know basically who they correspond to. This address corresponds to this address, and you could probably make certain assumptions based on that. It's not telling you what was bought or anything like that. But anyway, long story short, it it's publicly kind of available like that. And if I understand it right, they could probably just go to Coinbase because Coinbase requires your real identity in order to purchase the, purchase the Bitcoin in the first place. So... I under, if I understand it right, they could probably track you down via Coinbase too. And at, at any rate, nobody would essentially argue that Bitcoin is an, is an anonymous thing or would keep you anonymous from like state actors or whatever. But it is something that doesn't require, nobody can cancel you. You know, it doesn't matter if your bank does whatever, you could still buy stuff on Bitcoin. Nobody can, nobody can cancel you anymore if you have that Bitcoin in your possession. I suppose one day somebody could shut down your Coinbase account, but it's not tied to Coinbase. It's not even tied to the Trezor wallet. It's If it's in your hand, it's something that you could use. It's, it's a protocol that you can use. So anyway, it's got a lot of 
of good uh, resilience in that way. But I do want to make that point that it's not anonymous. There are some things that you could do to make Bitcoin more anonymous. You could mine it yourself. Uh, you could, you know, there's some some privacy coins like Monero out there. Um, but the, I don't even think that's foolproof. I think I saw an article about that the other day. But anyway, you know, if that's your goal, it's probably not the best goal. But it is, as I say, a way to never be canceled and to, and I think it's something that every Christian should learn how to do. Okay, I wanted to talk a little about social media. And we all know, you know, parlors got canceled and probably not coming back up and a lot of stuff like that. We don't want to use things like Twitter and Facebook if we can help it. And so we're all wondering, what do we do and where do we go? And at least for the meantime, I found a solution that works for me. And it's not about it's not about choosing another social media network. We've all seen where that leads. Uh, but I think I got another idea. And that is, so on your iPhone or on your Android phone, you can create, uh, add to home screen any page on your browser. So if I wanted to go to, um, let's say, the gatewaypundit.com, I could type that in there, Gateway Pundit in Safari. And in Apple, I think I just, what do I do? I, I go down to the share button, and then one of my options in share is to add to home screen. And then it basically creates a little icon that says Gateway Pundit on, or a G, or its logo. And I can put that anywhere on my phone as basically an app. And it functions exactly like an app. You know, these every good website these days basically is formatted for your phone. So it might as well be a Gateway Pundit app. And the way I have my phone organized is in little subfolders. So on my front page of my phone, I've got one thing that just says social. And in there, I've got several pages of, you know, the Babylon Bee <laughs> homepage, you know, or what have you, Infowars, and all the stuff that I, I really like, Eschatos Ministries, and I actually th think it's actually more... So the reason I liked Twitter, and the reason that I liked um, Facebook, I, to a lesser extent, I really didn't spend much time on Facebook, but Twitter, to me, was just a way to get news. Now, that was the way that I used social media. I didn't want... It was a way for me to quickly kind of keep updated if anything crazy was going on, and to basically get a pretty wide understanding of what was going on that day and and it was less about the people it, it, it was mainly because twitter allows you to filter by the people that you like <laughs> and not hear anything that you don't like that gave you that your kind of personalized news well that's basically what this is i go and read the news stories from you know all your favorite uh, uh news networks or what have you and I feel like I'm even more informed now and get the same sort of thing happening. Basically, all this is decentralization. Um, you've got to be decentralized. And I feel like decentralized news is the only way to go until they start shutting down DNS, that is to say, websites of people. And we'll talk about that in a second. But again, for, for Android, it's a little bit different. So you go to your browser, whatever you're using. And I think you just, on the top right, you'll see those three dots. I think in Android, you just hit that and then add to home screen there and then of course you got to move that little icon to where you want it on your home screen after that but basically i think that you know you can, you can essentially create as many apps as you want and you'll never know the difference you'll never know hey that's not an app that's just a basically a bookmark to a, a page but uh you won't look they look like apps with the icons and everything so it's it's a really great little situation 
And finally, I'm going to talk a little about podcasts. I really do think podcasts are the future. It's going to be so hard to cancel podcasts. Uh, what they can easily do is cancel a podcast off the Apple Store or cancel a podcast off the uh, Google Store or shop, you know, wherever you're getting your podcast. They can easily take you off of that. And that's the genius of Podcast 2.0 and the Podcast Index, which is all uh, uh, sort of pioneered by the, the so-called podfather, Adam Curry, and his wonderful show, No Agenda, which I was just recently started listening to and just love it. I mean, it's just love it. And um, anyway, uh, the podcast index is basically an index of all the podcasts that you listen to that, that aren't, aren't cancelable, you know. So developers and stuff can use this to make their own podcast apps to search for podcasts and add podcasts and listen to podcasts, but they're not using Apple's feed. So when Apple cancels somebody's podcast feed, it doesn't matter because that feed has nothing to do with Apple. It's just an RSS feed running off a server that can be changed anytime. And, um, and that's another thing about the wonders of RSS is, as I say, they can take you off the iTunes store, but all you really ever give iTunes is an RSS feed. That RSS feed is linking back to your server. You're hosting the podcast, not them. Um, and let's say somebody did go so far as to cancel your server. You know, they got your server to shut you down. Well, that podcast feed still exists depending on where you, you put it out. Um, so you can essentially change, point the server to a different URL. It really comes down to the URL, which I think the future of this is going to come down to. And really domains are kind of the, 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 the critical thing. I'm just going to briefly talk about some of the stuff that, um, People are really thinking about this, and I'm glad to see sort of behind the scenes that this stuff is really being thought about by a lot of the people that are, you know, big in the Christian world is trying to figure out what do we do when everything's made illegal. And a lot of it right now does come down to how do we host files? How do we have domain names uh, when they cancel your domain, your .com domain name? And a lot of that a lot of it doesn't really have good answers yet. There's there's prototypes and things in the works. Uh, some thoughts about those Librem 5 phones I was talking about, using those for different things, and lots of interesting ideas. But really right now, if they make servers illegal, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing to do. But it's not impossible because of things like the international uh, uh, interplanetary file system. The interplanetary file system is kind of like a, a torrent site for the web basically is it is something that nobody no one person is hosting a website necessarily it's kind of a shared internet where everybody hosts a piece of it and i highly recommend people converting especially if you're in a ministry or you have text or something that you want to survive your situation you know you want to not um you want to you want your work to survive into the future, even when they shut down stuff and whatever. The inter, interplanetary file system is the way to go with a domain that is uncensorable, unstoppable domains and crypto domains and domains based on Ethereum are probably the way to go. But that too has its problems. Uh, but that's going a little bit too too deep into it right now. All I want to say is I've converted. I know I talked recently about how. 
I had taken all my books, all, all five of my Bible prophecy books, plus the script for uh, the seven pre-trib problems, and I had that all converted to HTML and then put that on a, a HTML website, which is BibleProphecyText.com. And the reason that I did that, besides just making all my books free and allowing Google to search them, uh, so that hopefully people can find the information, but was also to set up for this interplanetary file system. Now we're in the process of converting all that information to the interplanetary file system. Um, a listener of this show is helping me do that, and I think that he's probably excited to uh, to learn that as a as a, uh, a a job or you know or an additional thing that he can do too. So he's he's learning that knowledge. So if anybody has. Uh, or wants that done for their work or their ministry, uh, contact me at uh, Chris. Uh, what is my email address? Uh, Chris dot white seventy nine at protonmail dot com. No, no dots, no dots. Chris white seventy nine at protonmail dot com is my uh, email address, and I can uh, introduce you. Maybe he's got time to do it. I don't know if he does or, or not. But my point is to say, I think that's where this is all going in terms of preservation. You have to be, you have to get to a place where servers are uh, being sort of distributed, a distributed network, kind of like a torrent. So, so you don't need a server because there technically is no server. It's running on everybody who's opted in their computers, which makes this very, very hard to make illegal. And so then the question really comes how to roll back stuff to, to get the bandwidth. And that's where converting things to HTML instead of video comes in. Or taking down the resolution of your video from 4K to whatever, 720 or whatever needs to happen to make it more long term. So a lot of preparing has to do with rolling back to newer technologies or older technologies rather. And as I say, I've got other things that I wish I could talk about, but um, really are just in the early stages, and I'm not sure I ever will talk about them. One quick update before I leave the Seven Pre-Trib Problems movie. Recently hit over 100,000 views, which I'm really excited about. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of interest in anything to do with about rapture stuff or Bible prophecy stuff. So to even have 100,000 views on a, on a video like that has been pretty great. Uh, some of those numbers were in were because of uh, 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 paid advertising. Uh, I just checked it yesterday. I spent uh, twenty four dollars yesterday for five hundred views, and that's not that bad because I have a really good handle on 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 who I'm advertising to, and because of that, I know that I'm getting a really good return in terms of the amount of the movie that they're watching. I can see that th they watch 25%, 50%, or 75%, or 100%. And I've got it dialed into a situation where I'm only, I call it actual interest, is the new ad group, where you know these are people that are typing in something relevant. They want to know about the rapture. They're halfway there. They just need to know more information about it. And I'm just serving the ads up to them. So I'm not getting as many views a day. It's not a huge part of the viewership of that video, but it is grabbing those people that want to know it. It's kind of like 
the matrix sort of uh in the sense that people got that got out of the matrix anyway uh i guess i that's in that analogy i would be morpheus but anyways let me go ahead and wrap up this podcast and say uh if you need to contact me for any reason i probably won't answer your email but you can certainly contact me at chris white 79 at g uh there you go at protonmail.com chris white 79 at protonmail.com go to bibleprophecytalk.com do all the stuff do a review what have you it all helps and uh we'll see you next time bye